That's my son's friend. Oh. My son's hey. Friend. Hey. Okay. Mom, I'm in a GP near Heaton Park with Katerina. I met Katerina recently at a Saturday school for Ukrainian kids. Gathered behind Katerina in the GP are her mother, sister and niece, who at that point had been in Manchester for a week after escaping Kharkiv. In this episode, we're going to talk more about their journey here. This is a Manchester Weekly from The Mill. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Manchester Weekly from The Mill. I'm here with Jack Delhanty, who you've just heard. And Jack is going to be telling us about his extraordinary story about Katerina and her family arriving in Manchester and trying to settle in after escaping from their bombed-out city, Kharkiv, in Ukraine. We're also going to be hearing from Danny about a piece she wrote this week about precarious work, insecure work that a lot of young people in Manchester are having to take on at the moment. Plus, Jack and I are going to discuss a couple of other stories we've been looking at recently. One about homelessness in Manchester and why the number of people in temporary accommodation has been skyrocketing in recent years. And also a story about hospitality and why it is that a lot of young people are not going back into those jobs, causing a bit of a squeeze in the labour market for bars, restaurants and nightclubs. But Jack, let's talk about your weekend read about Katerina and her family. We first read about Katerina on the mill a few weeks ago. She was the teacher at the Saturday school that you visited. It was a really nice piece where we kind of met some of the kids. We heard about how Katerina is telling these teenagers about the war. There was even that extraordinary bit where she said she's teaching geography of Ukraine via the invasion. And what happened recently is she's been updating you, hasn't she? And she said, my family is now coming over. They're coming to Manchester. And that's when you sort of arranged to go and see her. Yeah, that's right. So me and Katerina had been speaking ever since that piece, kind of just following her family's progress as they made their way from Ukraine to the UK. And in the end, Katerina ended up going over to Poland, where she had a cousin that the family was staying with to essentially collect them and fly them back once they got visas. So did she have to persuade them to come to Manchester because she was here or was that sort of always the plan from day one? I think that was always the plan from day one. I think the backup plan would have been staying in Poland. Okay, so talk us through the the family members we've got here. So you've got Katerina's mum, whose name is Lubov, her sister, who's called Elena, and her niece, whose name is Darina. And they travelled from Kharkiv, which was in the east of the country, which was one of the Russians' initial targets and underwent some of the heaviest bombardment. Mum woke up, she heard those bangs there and she looked at the window and she saw something on fire. So she woke everybody up and she also ran to wake up the uh, neighbour lady. So she woke everybody up and my sister says that she was like... When you hear the shooting, like a bombing, you literally just don't know where to run. Mm. You don't know what to do. You just feel a little bit lost. But then mom said, what do we do? What do we do? So they, they decided like to get dressed. So by the time I rang them, they said, we are all dressed. We sit here from like 4 a.m. and we don't know what to do. It looked like it was... They travelled from there via Lviv to Poland and then from Poland to Manchester and completed the journey in exactly three weeks and it's a huge journey isn't it on the train yeah the train journey for them was 25 hours but then when they got into Lviv they were um, like bomb 
sirens going off and they had to wait before entering the station for another four hours. And her mum and sister, so Lubov and Elena, had been standing that whole time. That's unbelievable. So they've come over to Manchester. They are refugees from the war. They're not planning to be here for too long, are they? Or they're, they're very much hoping to go back quite soon. Yeah, one of the main things that you really picked up, which I kind of expected, was that they are really, really longing for home, as anyone would expect. But then they also have to balance that with the fact that they might not have a home to go back to. Mm. And do they know what the state of their building is because they lived in an apartment block that was originally under attack or there was an attack nearby. They lived in two apartment block that, that was bombed. It wasn't as heavily bombed as the one next door which took a direct hit. Funnily enough it didn't get it into the piece but Lubov's friend was in that flat. She was about two floors below where the shell hit. She was actually, she'd had a mini stroke and she was having a lie down that day mm. and the top three floors were just completely decimated but thankfully she survived. Mm. So yeah, their home was bomb they don't know if it's still around i know that katarina has a friend who's still living in the area who said tanks were going through their kind of neighborhood mm. just the other week around the time that i did the original piece so she texts me saying like i'm pretty sure my house has been destroyed it's quite powerful isn't it just the thought that walking around in our city now are people who come from one of these cities that was under heavy bombardment mm. you know it's not just a any ukrainian city but it's one of the real flashpoints in the war what did you think was the moment that they decided to come here? Because I don't think they were from day one planning to get out, were they? On the first day, as it, as is written in the piece, they had absolutely no idea what to do. Mm. They woke up, got dressed and just sat there. Katerina called them and said, what are you going to do? And they said, we don't know. So they kind of vacillated for a while between people's garages, under different houses, and then they eventually made the decision that they just had to get out of the country. Yeah. And back then, I remember Katerina saying, you know, she wasn't getting her hopes up for them coming to the UK. She didn't want to preempt it. They were waiting on them getting into Poland before doing a visa application. So yeah, it was kind of up in the air for a while. And then I think as soon as the visas came in, Katerina was just like, look, just come here. Because they've been there before. They've come to Manchester before. And she was already there kind of willing them over here and waiting. So. And how did they feel about being here did you did you think it was um it was very much the case that the war had kind of followed them here should i say mm. they were all saying that they were still dreaming of it they were all still worried about the people who were still there mm. i think like there's a sort of physical escape from war but i think for a lot of ukrainians anywhere now they'll never really have that real sense of mental peace until the war's over mm. and you said to me last week when you were in the office you said Katerina has been translating the original piece that we wrote, yeah. which obviously she, she starred in, she featured in. And from that moment, her mother had said, I want to speak to him, yeah. i.e. you. Yeah, yeah. Because I remember Katerina was telling me that I went and met her in her office one night when she'd finished work. Mm. And she mentioned that to me and she was saying that her mum was like, did you tell him this? Did you tell him that? And she was like, no, I wasn't there. And her mum was like, we need to talk to him because we need to tell him that. Right. So yeah, she was really keen to talk. But at the same time, it was strange, like... Katerina's mum particularly leapt into the chance to speak mm. but then would often end up crying while doing it and right. I think a lot of it and Katerina had said this to me that like mm. her mum had gone from not being able to speak about it at all over the phone when she was still in Ukraine to needing to speak about it with everyone and having to tell her everything that had happened as if she was mm. getting some sort of substance off of her you know like it was something that she really needed uh, vocalising so I found that really quite powerful when speaking to her it looked like it was only like some military objects and like uh, military sort of 
airdrop or airports or something so since they didn't believe it's serious like threat anyway so they thought okay they're gonna do this here there and everywhere and then it's gonna stop mm. so even when it started nobody believed it's actually how bad it's gonna be and what about the younger women the sister and the uh, niece yeah so the sister elena she is now trying to get ESOL classes so she can start working as a hairdresser which is what she did in Ukraine. That's English uh, as a foreign language. Yeah, yeah English as a second language. Yeah. She's a hairdresser and all she had the time to sort of in leave and she's got one comb and a pair of scissors and wow. that's all she has that she's brought with her Yeah. and then Darina was studying a computer linguistics course at the Kharkiv Polytechnic Institute so mm. she's according to Katerina and just by merely speaking to her, you can tell she's incredibly intelligent. Mm. She's looking to like design apps with Katerina's boyfriend, who's a software developer. Mm. There are kind of whispers of transferring her studies or even uh, working remotely, which I found unbelievable. But all of her um, teachers at the moment are actually reaching out to all of their students, trying to work out where they are and trying to work out if remote learning would be feasible. It's amazing that remote learning is even possible from a, yeah. a country that's at war. There's one line in your piece that really spoke to me because I come from a family where all of my Jewish relatives were ones who escaped from Europe during the Holocaust. There's an account written by one of my relatives from that time of saying goodbye to their parents at a train station in, in Vienna. So there was a bit of your piece that really spoke to me where you wrote, Once at the station, there was little time to say goodbye. Darina kissed her father on the cheek. She hadn't cried much during the war. And you quote, This is a situation that's so harsh that you have no time to cry. But that she did then. Yeah. That's pretty that's pretty moving stuff. Yeah, and Elena and Lubov didn't get a chance to say goodbye. They just started running straight for the train. And are they still in touch with um, the father? Yes. Only like fleetingly. He's a volunteer, he's still doing what he was doing then, which mm. I don't think he's in the territorial defence. He's a volunteer driving people from different locations so that they can escape and delivering food as well. So he recently delivered food to the basement that they were staying in. He delivered food there and people are essentially trapped under those buildings now. They think that's one of their main concerns as people who've left the country is what's going to happen to all those people who are in basements who can't leave them now. And just finally, as a journalist who is being invited into a situation where these people are trying to build a little new life here, they've just arrived, they're crying all the time, they're obviously telling you stories that are really difficult to tell even though they've brought you along in order to do that. What was it like for you experiencing that? A privilege, really. I think it's the kind of thing that reminds you that there are people who understand how important telling a story is, especially Katerina. Katerina's always been, the whole time that we've sort of been in communication, she's really drilled home that thing. Even when it's become like quite difficult, she said, no, but I need to speak to you because you're the person who's going to tell other people. Yeah. I never really felt that way about my job. It was like, I have to get this stuff out of me. It's kind of like a therapy session. I mean, I've experienced interviews like that before, but nothing on this scale and nothing that's felt so, you know, pertinent just because of the time that we're living in. It was strange, you know, knowing that you were sat in front of someone who'd been there. That was something that I sort of kept looping through my head. It was like, wow, you've been hearing about this on the news. You've been seeing these people leaving Ukraine and now here's three of them sat in front of you in a house. <laughs> it was very strange at points. Now, also in Ukraine, you've got this brilliant charity from Manchester, UK Med. And we interviewed the founder of the charity, Tony Redmond, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, and he talked about sending medics over there. And he, at that point, they were just opening up operations there. 
I think in the past couple of weeks they've kind of been amping it up because another four or five doctors flew out from the UK. Mm. Jack, you spoke to one of them from Ukraine the other day who had, I think, been out there. How long has she been out there? A few days. She's on a six-week deployment and she's a weekend. She's an emergency paediatric nurse. Tell us what she told you. I was asking mostly around, you know, what, what are the kind of things that you see and what are people presenting with? A lot of what they're seeing is cases of, that require primary care. She herself is working a lot with a lot of children. So a lot of it's kind of like primary care stuff, the sort of things that kids present with here. Mm. A lot of pre-existing conditions that have kind of need medication that they've not been able to get access to for weeks because they've been stuck in basements and stuff like that. Lots of acquired sort of conditions, so like colds and general illness. And then obviously they also are dealing with people who have undergone, you know, shelling and presenting with injuries from that or in some cases have been shot she was telling me a story about a guy who arrived whose dad was shot while his dad was trying to get his mom out of a basement mm. and she was saying the main thing unsurprisingly that a lot of their patients are trying to deal with is the mental strain and the kind of ptsd that, that they're dealing with so mm. yeah it sounds incredibly difficult but it's unbelievable work that they're all doing so are they operating out of some sort of field hospital there? Yeah, so they're in a field hospital in a small town just outside of Lviv in the, uh, the western part of Ukraine. Mostly, obviously, it's taking on people who are arriving on trains from Lviv. So she was talking a lot about people who have basically need treatment because of standing on a train for 24 hours. Mm. There was one woman that she met who'd sat on a train for 24 hours with three children across a lap. And she was just exhausted, as you would expect. So when you think field hospital, you think like mm. military injuries. Mm. But a lot of what people are coming in with is obviously exhaustion. Mm. Uh, people who need medication. So people coming in with like type 2 diabetes who haven't been able to have any sort of treatment for that. And it was those little things that I hadn't expected that I must imagine are causing unbelievable stress to add to the mental stress of being in a war anyway. That's the good thing about these kind of charities. They go to places where medical provision is just incredibly reduced the work they do is incredible and the one thing that she said she wanted me to say was thank you to everyone who is you know donating and helping them on this mission to help people she was very clear that she wanted everyone to know that okay so you can read more about her in monday's briefing and if you want to donate to the campaign head over to ukmed.co.uk and they've got an appeal running Now, Jack, another story that we've been working on a lot recently is homelessness in Manchester. Because a couple of months ago, we started to look at the data about homelessness. And I think the bit of homelessness that people think about a lot is the most visible bit, so rough sleeping. And the thing that we started to talk about was there is this absolutely enormous rise in the past seven years in the number of people in temporary accommodation in Greater Manchester, but specifically in Manchester itself. You're talking a rise from, you know, effectively the hundreds to the thousands, roughly a 5x increase over that time period. And this is people who are homeless, they are put in temporary accommodation provided by the council, and then they're effectively in a sort of holding pattern waiting either to get in back into private rented accommodation or to get into social or to sort themselves out by going to a family or, or a friend's um, house. What we wanted to understand, I suppose, is 
What's driving that massive increase? What's changed between 2014 and now that means that in Manchester specifically, that number is absolutely ballooning? And I don't think, you know, we're embarrassed to say we don't fully know yet. This week we spoke to the Mayor of Salford about it, um, who's also the lead on on these issues for Greater Manchester. We've spoken to Manchester City Council's Head of Housing about it. But you've also been going to lots of these temporary accommodation centres. These are buildings there where the council is effectively renting rooms um, in order to put people up when they're homeless. Tell us a little bit about what these places are like. Well, they seem to be infamously difficult to get into. I've spent a lot of time in their lobbies chatting to the people on the desk, asking if I can go up and being told that I can't, uh, which is understandable and that's fine. I've spent a lot of time outside of them I've spoken to people that have been on the way to work out of these places, which feels like a massive mm. disconnect mm. there, that they're in temporary accommodation and going to work at mm. the same time. A lot of the reasons when I've been asking people, you know, how did you end up in this situation? It's mm. incredibly varied. You have people who've come to this country as asylum seekers and then their kind of home office support has ran out and then they've gone and presented homeless to the council and the council have put them here. Mm. You have people who have undergone incredible stress some of them over the pandemic found themselves in hospital or being sectioned and then referred from those institutions back to the council and the council put them in there so it feels like a lot of people almost fall into these various different streams Mm. that all end up with them being referred to the council and then the council referring them to a temporary accommodation provider and with quite a few of the people you've spoken to the main challenge has been the language barrier yeah what have those people told you about how long they've been in the temporary accommodation? Yeah, I've met people who have just moved in 10 days ago. I've met people who've been there, you know, for, it's like a middling five months. Mm. That's a kind of like average. I've met someone who's been in them for four years, two years, four years and beyond or around 18 months. When I've spoken to social workers and sort of the supported accommodation, they've told me themselves, you know, like the average time that someone spends here now is about 18 months. Wow. Which is insane when you think about it, especially that guy in particular was like, you know, I remember when I first started here, we were putting someone in a social home, one or two people a week. Now it's like one person a month and that's on a good month. Yeah. So for the amount of time that people are spending in these places, it it beggars belief in a way. Yeah. And I suppose one of the weird things for us working on this story is that we genuinely don't know the answer. I mean, the thing that's been written a lot about Manchester is that rents have been rising so fast that people have been evicted from their homes. They can't afford their rents anymore. They've ended up homeless. They've ended up in temporary. But when we started working with data scientists from the University of Manchester, these are data science students who've been like seconded to the mill on a project uh, for a couple of months. They keep on coming back to us with graphs saying evictions are not rising in Manchester particularly fast compared to other comparable cities or boroughs in Greater Manchester. The social housing waiting list isn't rising particularly fast in Manchester compared to other similar places. And actually only a relatively small number of the people who end up homeless in Manchester have been evicted from private rented places. So it feels like there's a lot more to the story of why there is this absolutely enormous number in temporary accommodation in Manchester than maybe some of the previous reporting has made out. Is that sort of how you've been feeling about it as well? Yeah, I mean, I remember when we were in a data meeting the other week, one of our data scientists showed us a um, a matrix, mm. which I didn't understand at first, mm. but then he essentially said, if the square is black, that mm. means there is no correlation between the two things. Right. It was like the square was black between temporary accommodation and eviction rates, and it was like... yeah. You know, you almost have to, like, shake your head to clear it when you hear Zavaz. Because I think it is a very ingrained idea. Mm. And it has been the kind of basis for a lot of reporting in the past. Mm. 
And what we're saying, listeners, is if you know about this area, if you work in housing, if you work in homelessness, please, can you get in touch? Because we are generally trying to work out what are the factors driving this. And it was a bit funny when we spoke to the politicians this week in the head of housing at Manchester City Council. It didn't feel like they necessarily had a super clear idea of what was going on. Maybe that's being a bit unfair to them. They did throw out a lot of factors, but a lot of the factors they named were national factors, or factors that affect the whole of Greater Manchester. And what we're trying to understand is why does this one bit of the central bit of Greater Manchester, Manchester City itself, why has it had this absolutely colossal change? So we will try and get to the bottom of that, but I thought it'd be good to give um, listeners an update. Now next up, we've got a report from Danny. A few weeks ago, she found a young woman who had posted on social media about losing her agency job, her temping job, because she'd had an abortion, she'd had to take some time out because of the abortion for obvious reasons. At one point, she'd had to take a call from a nurse who was, who was helping her with the process, and she had her contract terminated. And that got us talking in the office about temporary work, precarious work, and how many people, particularly of our generation, I'm 33 and and Danny's a little bit younger, are doing jobs that are pretty insecure, they're based on contracts rather than full-time employment, you don't always know how many hours you're going to get, you certainly don't really know how how many hours you're going to be getting in a few months' time because you might be on this contract or you might be on another one. And it's a type of work that, according to official figures, government figures, has been growing massively in the past decade. I think it's actually grown about 4x in the last 20 years across the UK. Danny wrote a really interesting piece about this issue this week for Mill members. Here she is to tell you more. I connected with Jasmine, who is 26, after she posted on a Reddit forum asking for help finding a new job. She'd recently been let go because she'd had an abortion and she was on a temporary contract, which was only about three months long. Because of her situation, she'd taken up to two weeks sickness leave and on her first day back, she stepped away from her desk for 10 minutes to take a phone call from her nurse. And it was during this time that her colleagues reported her to her manager. And at the end of the day, she was told that her contract was being terminated because the manager felt her performance wasn't up to standard. Stories like Jasmine's are, you know, replicated all across Greater Manchester, particularly in their experiences of being in precarious work. Precarious work doesn't have a legal definition as such, but it's a term that's usually used to refer to people who are in part-time work, zero-hours contracts, or people who are freelancers. And it's a question that researchers are giving some serious thought to because of the implications it has for the labour market and sort of the the social impact it has for young people. Now talking of insecure work and and, and low paid work, there was an interesting story this week about hospitality in Manchester and Sasha Lord was quoted in that MEN story. He's the nighttime economy advisor for Andy Burnham and he runs the warehouse project and he said maybe we need to look at ourselves and ask did we treat staff the way we should have done in the first place? That's him kind of commenting on the fact that hospitality is finding it difficult to persuade some people who used to work in it to come back after the pandemic. Now, Jack, you obviously wrote about Manor, the Michelin-style restaurant for us, which really put a spotlight on, on the treatment of staff in this sector. You've also spoken to loads of other people in this sector. Did Sasha Lord's comment ring true to you? Yeah, 100%. I mean, he also 
sort of qualifies that almost instantly after like obviously a lot of people did treat staff well and that's true and a lot of people do i was recently talking to a guy who runs a few places in manchester and he was saying that it's very much a two-way street in that you have customers who are so demanding of a certain type of service and have come to expect a certain type of service that creates these unsustainable working patterns for people. Yeah. You have a customer base who, in many cases, just don't understand the amount of work that goes into the product that they're being given. Mm. And if I was in charge of creating campaigns to try and make people understand it, that's mm. what I'd be trying to make them understand. Yeah. Just how much work goes into just the single drink you're given or the yeah. single plate of food that you're given. Mm. Because... A lot of it does come from people expecting a lot more than you probably would expect from another worker. And that is what makes it incredibly difficult. Also, another thing that was mentioned in that piece that struck me, and I remember when I worked in hospitality, a lot of this was mm. the case. Oftentimes, if someone's working in hospitality, they're working there as a kind of stepping stone to something else. Or maybe they'll be like a paralegal or training to be something else. Mm. And the pandemic meant that all of those people who originally were having the time cut in half by having to work in hospitality could have the same money on furlough but all the more time mm. to get into the thing that they wanted to get into right. so by the time that the pandemic was done a lot of them had moved on to the thing that were, they were finally reaching for and I think that's really caused them a lot of trouble is that you know calling someone up and it's actually like oh no that thing that I said I was going to get into I finally got into it because I had the time so they are in a really difficult situation and actually, we've got a slightly younger audience on this podcast, I think, than we normally have on the email. We've met various people in the last few weeks who are in their 20s and who mainly consume the mail via the podcast. So good opportunity to ask them. If anyone out there is working in hospitality and wants to chat to Jack about it, it's jack at manchestermail.co.uk because we'll be doing plenty more on that industry in the weeks ahead. OK, Jack, before we go, let's recommend a couple of things for our listeners to do this weekend. What's your rec? The Manchester Marathon is this Sunday. That's starting at 9am. It's the flattest major marathon, which I don't know if they're fitting that on any medal that they'll be handing out. But if you have a kind of glut of bottled water that you want to hand out to a lot of tired people, uh, you could go there. I'll be there. So try and uh, spot me in the crowd. I'll see you there. Yeah. My recommendation is Nora a Doll's House, which is a reworking of Ibsen's Doll's House. It's at the Royal Exchange. Danny and I went to see it a few weeks ago and really, really liked it. Some people haven't liked it, like The Guardian, who gave it two stars. I thought it was moving. I thought the performances were good. Whether or not you think the sort of reworking of the script with women from three different generations of sort of feminist struggle, whether you think that works or not, I think it's a really sort of powerful show all the same and I think the, the main performances from the three leading women are brilliant so that is in its final week and the final performance is Saturday night at the Royal Exchange thank you very much for listening to this latest episode of the Manchester Weekly from the Mail we'd really appreciate if you went on to whichever podcast app you use and left us a rating and left us a comment or a review that helps us to grow and that means that, that Spotify and Apple will promote us and all that sort of good stuff if you want to read more of our stories, head over to manchestermill.co.uk and please do join up as a member um, if you'd like to get two extra editions of the newsletter every week and support our work as we grow. Thank you very much and see you on next week's episode. <laughs>